Let's talk about politics, environmental science, global warming, constitutional rights, social and economic challenges, money, power, choice. Nature does not compromise. Free droughts, free heat waves. Sea levels are rising, and it is about climate change. This is the uh, future of the next generations. Hello, and welcome to season two of Let's Talk About Climate. This is a podcast where we talk about climate change and how it relates to all of us. And I'm your host, Becca. I'm Ying. And this episode is in honor of Black History Month and Women's History Month. Today, we have three women of color joining us who are fellows at Change Chamber or who are involved in other types of climate action and environmental justice work. I would like to introduce our three guests that we have. First, we have Kendall. Hi, I'm Kendall. I'm currently a fourth year at University of Chicago and I'm studying environmental science. Um, I identify as black and I have been with Change the Chamber for for a bit over a year now. Um, I've mostly been on the environmental justice team and the legal team and I'm really excited to be here. Thanks Kendall, we're really happy to have you. And next we have Gabriella. Hi, I'm Gabriella, and I graduated from Brown University in May of 2021, and I was studying environmental science, and more specifically, conservation science and policy. I've been with Change the Chamber since October, and I'm a mixed-race woman. And thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here, Gabriella. And then we have Courtney. Hi, everyone. My name is Courtney. I use she, her pronouns. I also identify as Black. I am finishing up my final year at the University of California, San Diego, where I study public health with a concentration in health policy and management. And in my past experience, I've done work on environmental justice, fair housing, and overall public health issues. Thanks for letting me out, y'all. Thank you all for being here. And we are really excited just to hear about your personal experiences and how you think this all configures into how we should approach climate activism and environmental justice. I'll start off with our first question. And as for our listeners, we are all curious about, um, is there something personal that get you involved in climate space? And what are something that keep you involved and taking some actions? So I grew up in an area called the Inland Empire, which is comprised of Riverside and San Bernardino County, areas within Southern California, about an hour and a half inland of Los Angeles area. It's really well known for being a logistics and manufacturing kind of like super center. Um, Any company from Amazon to like big lots even have some sort of developmental property there and kind of what ties into that is you had a lot of different types of sources of air pollution. So we not only had air pollution from those stationary sources of development and manufacturing, but we also had, um, I lived in extremely close proximity to a lot of major freeways. And so growing up, kind of, we made jokes in high school about like, oh, the air quality isn't safe today, but we still have to go do PE. And I definitely had uh, the uh, burden of class kind of lifted from me just because of personal background. I did come from a pretty well-off family. However, my area and the area surrounding it were predominantly people of color and predominantly low-income people of color. So you can obviously kind of see that there wasn't really a preference when it came to the planning and zoning of those communities and how close a lot of manufacturing areas were to us. And so that's what really kind of got me at least aware of what environmental justice was. I knew about environmentalism as a kid and I was really in 
interested in it, but I never found a personal connection with it just because a lot of the um, major environmentalist movements, even to this day, struggle with an issue of being kind of centered on preserving the natural environment and centering the voices of white middle to upper class uh, cisgender people. And I feel like that kind of was what kept me away from initially calling myself an environmentalist and going to be involved in the movement. However, coming to college and learning more about environmental justice and kind of connecting my personal experiences to my identity of being Black, being a woman, in Southern California is really what's kept me within the field and also not only um, connecting it to my personal identity, but also connecting it to my fields of passion, which is public health. Uh, a lot of social determinants of health are really um, impacted by environmental justice and environmental issues overall. And so it's really interesting to see how those issues have been perpetuated over the last few years. And so that's kind of what's kept me in the space. Thank you for sharing. That's really interesting to hear about how you grown up and how you make connection later in your life. So I've always really been fascinated by the environment. When I was in elementary school, I wanted to be a meteorologist or something with weather outside. Um, and I guess once I grew older, so around high school and college, I became really interested in the policy and legal side. And I think once I became interested in those areas, sort of start seeing, I guess, more aspects of environmental injustices within my own community. Uh, my grandparents and like my immediate family is from um, the south side of Chicago, where it's like very hard to find public transportation and it's hard to like to find grocery stores and that sort of thing like close by. Whereas in like other areas further north, which is uh, like a much more wealthier area, it's a lot easier to find those sorts of things. And sort of noticing that and um, I guess I also worked with the Sierra Club for a summer. And while I was with them, we sort of looked at um, energy burdens throughout different communities. And we saw that the highest burdens were in the South Side areas, while the lowest burdens were in the Northern areas. And sort of seeing how these communities are sort of always overlooked when it comes to the climate space has really kept me in it and kept me more motivated towards environmental justice. That's really fascinating. I feel like climate change and environment issues is always around us, but like different people have different experience. And then if you move, you also experience it differently. Yeah, and I think similarly, where I grew up and where my family's from played a big part in shaping what I'm interested in. So I was born and raised in Rhode Island and I still live here now. And it's of course a coastal state. So we've always been pretty aware of climate issues and the importance of coastal communities. But at the same time, there are pretty stark racial gradients within the state. And those also tend to coincide with how marginalized communities are exposed to environmental hazards. And also my mother and her family are from the Cape Verde Islands, which if you don't know what that country is, it's a really small, isolated island nation in West Africa, and it's pretty resource poor, and there are a lot of really specific environmental issues within the islands. And I think that sort of contributed to my awareness as I grew up to different environmental challenges and got me interested in learning potential policy solutions. And then once I went to college and was exposed to not only different viewpoints, but different approaches to solving environmental problems. I knew that the environmental activism space was something I wanted to remain in for a long time. I'm really happy that you're all sharing about how your personal racial and ethnic backgrounds and your family histories and where you have grown up have really factored into your interest in 
climate activism and environmental justice. And my second question is about misconceptions. And I think it's really important because we have so many different listeners from different backgrounds who are maybe interested in climate activism and they haven't started or they're already doing climate activism. So my question is, what is one misconception that you think people, especially youth, because we are a youth campaign, have about climate change and activism? Yeah, so I guess one misconception about just the general climate space and like actions towards climate um, justice that I have seen, like especially now with like platforms like TikTok, is just like green consumerism and sustainability being the end all be all. Um, I definitely want to preface this by saying that when we talk about like overconsumption and consumerism, we need to look at it on a global scale and how a lot of like these micro trends that revolve around uh, like trends only lasting a year or two and you buying all these products of a certain trend and that waste ends up going to overexploited countries. And so a lot of times people use the defense of, oh, well, I can only afford like this amount of clothing and which is fine when you have to buy fast fashion, but that doesn't mean you have to like spend thousands of dollars on Shein to often like poor, not only poorly made clothes and poorly compensated workers, but clothes that you're not going to have for a while. So I think that's one end of the, uh, I guess, conundrum I've seen. But the other end is kind of this greenwashing. We're seeing it with a lot of corporations that are not necessarily changing their products to be more sustainable, but they are doing um, interesting marketing tactics to make their products look like they are better for the environment. But it's kind of the a similar product that has continued to harm the environment. So it's kind of like this issues of overconsumption and then if you are consuming sustainability do you know if your product is actually sustainable or if it is a victim of greenwashing and green consumerism and so I guess especially when it comes to younger adults I see this issue being very prevalent especially within my own spaces on my campus and I think I guess a solution to that misconception or dealing with that misconception is one understanding that under uh, certain economic systems you kind of have to work with what you have so if you're only able to shop fast fashion that's fine uh, but just don't kind of buy clothes to say on trend, try to buy what you need, which is like, I guess an unpopular take to say sometimes. And the other side of that is uh, just also remembering that the culture often likes to blame individual actions as the root for a lot of these issues when it comes to like uh, overconsumption and greenwashing consumerism, but it's not necessarily on the individual who's trying to do better for the environment, but rather on those entities that are kind of perpetually causing the harm on like a tenfold scale compared to us. First, I want to say I'm really glad that Courtney brought up those points, especially with the whole, you know, putting the blame on the individual on the side of the corporations. It just makes me think about how a lot of the really big recycling campaigns, specifically in the US, were run by these, you know, fossil fuel hired PR agencies that really wanted to take the onus off of themselves and put it on the consumer. So that's really interesting to think about. But I I think another misconception is that it's sort of a secondary issue that, you know, since we've sort of institutionalized climate change as something that's farther off and maybe won't be felt to the extreme as like, you know, short-term ec- economic losses or something of that nature, when it really is already happening and has been happening to a lot of different communities for decades, really. And it, it really does affect everything else in our lives, which I'm sure we'll talk about more during this discussion. But I really want to stress that it isn't a secondary concern for so many people. It really is just one of the most important issues because it's tied to 
identity and livelihoods and security, different types of security. And like I said, it's, it's not an issue that's far off. There have really been documented instances of climate change, especially among indigenous communities going back even centuries. So that being said, I think that young people today have a lot more like holistic perspective than a lot of older groups because we've grown up with not only the understanding that this is an issue that will affect us, but with more visual documentations of these changes. So it even has become like a lot more prominent since when I started college in fall of 2017. Just the awareness among people our age and even younger is really incredible. Well, I agree with Gabriella and Courtney. I think it's really easy to have a sort of one-track mind when it comes to these sort of societal problems. And it's really easy to sort of see social issues as something that cannot be addressed sort of hand in hand with environmental issues. And I think like, I believe Courtney mentioned earlier, um, the environmental movement has been, I guess, historically seen as something for more like white upper class um, individuals and sort of seen as something that you kind of care about when you sort of have no other issues going on. So I think that that sort of colors how people perceive sort of climate change, but I think it's really inextricably connected with all these other issues. And it's something that you can't really take care of without addressing sort of different aspects. Like you can't take care of climate change without addressing the social justice movement and sort of the inequities with income inequities. So I think it's really important to sort of see these issues as all just interconnected. I really appreciate you expounding on the intersectionality of these issues. So going off of that idea of of equity, when have you seen yourself a good example of equity intentionally being prioritized in climate action? Yeah, I think the Green New Deal is a really good example of that because it really talks about a whole kind of societal movement and really all aspects of life. And I think that there's also like more local versions. Like I believe New York City has a version of the Green New Deal and they really address sort of increasing public transportation and increasing like the number of parks that are around people and sort of addressing public housing, I believe. So they really bring together all these different aspects to create like one environmental policy which I think is really important when you're looking at climate change and environmental issues. If I could add in real quick to that point about a more local, I guess, option to that. One thing I think, or a one good example of equity intentionally being prioritized is with a lot of grassroots organizations. Um, some I wanted to highlight from my own like area. There's the Climate Action Campaign out of San Diego and Orange County, and there's the People's Collective for Environmental Justice in the, based in the Inland Empire. And I really just appreciate how when it comes to working with different sort of policies that come down from the state, such as like uh, AB2588, which is basically a uh, California state policy that kind of identifies target communities for climate injustices and kind of works with those communities. A lot of times these grassroots orgs are the people who are like from the gate ensuring that not only community members are responsible and involved in the decision-making process, but they have like agency in every aspect to it. So I feel like with a lot of localized organizations from your community, they do a really good job of kind of making sure equity is a first and primary principle. 
Yeah, I definitely will recommend our listeners to check out those organizations or just start browsing some of your local grassroots organizations, campaigns that are taking action on climate change. And those actually are trying to build community together to tackle the issues. Because I definitely feel like climate change and all the other environmental issues are totally interconnected. So being our leadership, I know that we cannot talk a lot about federal level, state governments, community campaigns, but like in general about climate leadership, what are your uh, thoughts about what it should be look like for us to move forward in climate action? Yeah, so as for climate leadership, I think one thing I've seen not only on like the local and state level, but also at the federal level is there's lots of discussions and creation of committees and lots of buzzwords used, which are also very important, just like having these conversations are. However, I feel like we are at the time, um, or we've been at the time, at least for the last 15, 20 years, where committees and discussions are uh, a little too late, in my own opinion. I feel like we really need to work on actually providing tangible action and legislation for communities impacted. Because I think, as mentioned earlier, we were talking about, there's a lot of discussion about climate change being this issue of the future and this issue that we keep on pushing off. However, we've lived in the midst of climate change for at least the past 20 or 30 years. We're seeing issues of climate refugees and mass displacement because of climate. We're seeing food uh, insecurity because of food deserts and food swamps because we are also having a lack in rainwater for agricultural reasons. So I think um, we are kind of past the point of just creating new committees and commissions to discuss these issues. And while those committees are also responsible for putting out tangible action, I feel like we've kind of given a lot more credit to people just establishing these conversations rather than actually providing tangible impact to communities. So I think climate leadership in the future should focus on not just saying that, oh, climate change is bad or, oh, we need environmental justice, but rather here are some actual steps we're going to take within the next 10 years, 15 years to ensure that we are able to at least mitigate because we can't really prevent at this point climate injustice. I totally agree with that. Solid action and plan need to get to the groundwork. What are you actually going to do? What is the action you're going to take now and you're going to take it is really, really important. Just thinking about like climate change is just happening now at the present. And a lot of people are already experienced those extreme weather events like flooding or fires and stuff like that. With that, I think it's also really important for, I guess, leadership and politicians to go to these communities and really speak with them and to see exactly what they need. I think a lot of these communities don't have the resources or the time to really know as much about environmental issues as they should or as they as other people are able to. So I think it's really important for politicians to be able to go down there and, I guess, just see talk to the people who are actually doing the work down there and see exactly what would be, I think, most helpful or what they're struggling with the most and really provide resources and help, like Courtney said. And then I also think that even for scientists, it's just really coming handy for them to just go to the community and see what the community is actually need. Because since from your research and your lab and things might not exactly work like in the real world uh, when you try to apply that. But yeah, I totally agree with you. So I think we kind of talk about it a little bit, but we want to like highlight and environmental justice in this podcast. 
and really hear from you all as a youth leaders in different movement and different actions about related to climate change about like what you personally think that climate movement and environmental justice should be prioritized. I do think that Kendall and Courtney have made a lot of the important points already. Specifically, Courtney used the term, you know, local agency. So not only should the the environmental justice movement prioritize building these connections, but also really returning the power to the communities that they're focusing on. Because a lot of times, you know, sometimes an outside influence coming in can seem a bit paternalistic. You know, it's, it's really important to center the voices of the people who are actually experiencing certain injustices and not only centering their voices, but making sure they have a key part in, in the activism itself. Um, but at the same time, stressing the urgency of the situation while coming to a consensus. So I think something that really holds back environmental action broadly, not just environmental justice action, but is that a lot of people have different ideas of what needs to be done to get something done and that ends up just delaying action. So, you know, building those coalitions, listening to people and a lot of times people who don't regularly care about environmental justice or environmental action need things to be framed in a way that they're thinking locally, thinking of how an issue might affect themselves. So that that should be another thing that's prioritized, really contextualizing things for people who haven't been able to connect to the cause in the, in the past. I did want to just comment on the last two questions and the, the idea of acting locally. And I think it is a challenge too, because there are so many leaders that they have come from backgrounds that are more privileged. They, it's still predominantly white, um, especially our politicians. I mean, it is changing and things are becoming more diverse, but often leadership is not exactly representing these local communities. So I, I think it's a challenge and a hurdle that we're going to have to continue to grapple with. I do really appreciate you mentioning that and those examples that you have from your lived experience. So moving on from that and really thinking about intersectionality, I know all of you mentioned how you can't fight or mitigate climate change and all the issues related to climate change without focusing on other social justice issues and human rights issues. And I know that you all have your other passions with social justice in mind. And I'm wondering, when we think about this intersectionality, what other fields do you think are particularly relevant or inform your understanding of the climate crisis? Yeah, so for me, I definitely have to say my public health degree has really like furthered the fire under me and wanting to get involved in environmental justice. Um, in like intro level public health classes, you'll learn about social determinants of health, which are basically all the things besides your genetics and biology that kind of are responsible in creating your health environment. And when I just realized how many of those social determinants are kind of really either at risk or further being like perpetually burdened by like climate injustices, it really made me put the connection between the two, especially when we're looking at things such as food and housing insecurity, which are not only public health issues and environmental justice issues, but just issues of their own. And when you think about issues of labor and um, occupational health, those are also public health issues. And so public health and environmental justice, in my opinion, are two fields that really just like intersect really well. And so I feel like if I'm able to do work in public health, I'm also able to further environmental justice. I want to say 
Yeah, that's great to hear you share about the connection between public health and climate. And I also do want to say that I feel like nowadays a lot of people take climate actions because there are health concerns or because they have those family history of health issues that is directly related to some of the climate or environmental things that happen in their community. So I, I really appreciate that you're sharing that connection. Similarly to Courtney, my academic training has definitely, you know, shaped the way that I view the issue. Um, And it was sort of half in ecology and evolutionary biology and half in public policy. So those are probably the, the initial lenses that I look through, especially ecology. There are a lot of different ways that ecologists use to justify their actions. And one that I really believe in is the belief in intrinsic value of things that exist and not just things, but communities, assemblages of species, assemblages of humans. Um, So that really does shape a lot of my work. And of course, we're all concerned about, you know, the climate science, but at the same time, more recently, I've been looking at things through a human rights perspective, um, because I got more interested in like, not only humanitarian response, but natural disaster response through some courses that I took at school. But when we think about human rights, a lot of times we default to thinking about, you know, major conflicts that are going on right now, you know, groups that we've heard of, but sometimes we fail to take into account future generations and the rights of not just our descendants, but descendants of people across the world. And a lot of times in economics, you sort of discount the future when you're thinking of climate and future projections, which I think is really a disservice to the people that are coming after us that will have to sort of deal with the decisions made by the elites and the powerful in our society. Yeah, and I also wanted to comment on something you said, Gabriella, about how we are very short-sighted in general as humans. And that's why I also think the youth voice coming back to that is so powerful is because we have already seen this occurring. And I think in some ways we feel this urgency a little bit more because we're going to really be feeling the repercussions even more in the future, if not, if we've already felt them in our own communities and maybe if we have kids or not. And I I think that's also why it's so important in for youth to be taking action and and to be driving different climate movements. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm really interested in environmental law and I think it's really important to be able to, I guess, push these companies that are violating the environmental laws and use the like courts to be able to get them to, um, to, I guess, stop like violating the laws. I volunteered with a um, legal clinic a couple of years ago and I was looking at two counties in Indiana and there were several uh, companies, like a lot of them were violating the environmental laws constantly, like every single quarter of like for the past three years, I believe. And they, even if they were sued by the EPA or by someone else and they had to pay millions of dollars, they still really continue to violate these laws. So I think it's incredibly important to just, just keep on pushing like in the courts and keep suing them until they really, I guess, until they have to pay enough money where it becomes cheaper for them to follow the laws instead of violate them. So I think that that's a really important aspect of the environmental movement, just continuing to 
push against these companies and ensure that they're following the laws because if there isn't enforcement of the laws, then I feel like there's no reason for them to exist because the companies can just continue violating them. I'm really glad that you highlighted that intersection between law and the environment and for there to be continued action in this front. I want to say it's really interesting that I feel like education really helps us to see the same issue differently. And also it's really interesting to see our guests here that come from different educational background, but land on the climate issues. And it is pretty amazing to have you all here. So I just wanted to open it up for all of you, just for some final thoughts or reflections or messages that you want audiences to hear. Yeah, I guess like a few brief final words uh, to the listeners. First and foremost, thank you guys so much for letting us come on here and speak about our experiences. It was really insightful, especially to learn about experiences of people who live in different parts of the country than me, because I am currently residing in Southern California. So it's both interesting and disheartening to see that these issues are kind of happening across the state or across the country. But I guess a little nugget of knowledge, especially for those who are actively working in the climate spaces, especially if you are a person of color or if you're queer or if you're of any marginalized identity, don't work yourself to yourself's harm, I guess. Like, don't try to take on the burden of all of these issues. Uh, activism burnout is really weir- real, the same way that like school burnout is. And I know with me, there was definitely points within the last few years where I've tried to take on as many issues as possible. And I just personally felt drained talking about them. And that shouldn't be the point. Like, of course, these issues are important and they're not positive by any means. However, you should have some sort of passion when you're still working with them. So if you're feeling like you're getting to that burnout point, take it seriously and prioritize your mental health. It's extremely important, especially working in any sort of activism space to have that. Well, first, I really love what Courtney said. That's definitely so true. Um, And I'm sure a lot of people can relate to those feelings. And also, I would say just don't give up hope. I think that there's at the same time that there are so many challenges when it comes to the environment, climate change, environmental justice. There are a lot of opportunities to right a lot of wrongs that have been done before us. And, you know, the ramifications of those actions can really reverberate through a lot of different communities and in a lot of different spaces. So Definitely look around you and see how inspiring the people of our generation are and just keep fighting. Yeah, I completely agree with Courtney and Gabriella. And I also think that, yes, our generation is definitely going in the right direction. I think that there are a lot of people who really are involved with climate activism and environmental justice. I think even just like in the past few years, environmental justice has really been pushed to the forefront. So I think as our generation continues to get older and sort of take positions of power, we will like continue to see major changes being made. So I think that's really important and really good to remember. And thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. This has been really illuminating and just the breadth of all of your knowledge and experiences is wonderful. And thank you again. We have three wonderful women and women of color. And I just wanna highlight that that is really awesome to have you guys on the podcast. Yeah, and I think our listeners will also be appreciate that to hear from you all and your experience and also from somebody who are part of the youth movement for fighting climate change to share about what your thoughts about a lot of things that we talked today. 
Once again, thank you for our listeners for joining us today. Before you go, don't forget to like us, subscribe, and rate us five stars on your podcast platform. Follow us on Instagram at Let's Talk About Climate Pod and Twitter at Talk Climate Pod. And check out our website, changethechamber.org. We can find all the links in the description below. Please reach out to us if there's anything you would like to hear us talk about. Please reach out to us if there's anything you would like to hear us talk about. With that, this is Let's Talk About Climate. Let's talk about politics, environmental science, global warming, constitutional rights, social and economic challenges, money, power, choice. Nature does not compromise. Free routes, free heat waves. Sea levels are rising, and it is about climate change. This is the uh, future of the next generation.